you know, from time to time, I mention this little uh, Bible that I have in my hand right here. It's called The Story. The Bible is one continuing story of God and his people. I've not done that for some time. And I was thinking about it today because in this new series, in fact, the passage that I'm going to start with actually begins in this, in like chapter 23, where it says Jesus' ministry begins. Now, what I love about this is I love the fact that it's written in chronological order. Uh, I can promote this book. I don't get any kickback from it. I'm just telling you, I, I love it, and I've read it, and I recommend it to all kind of people for this reason. I recommend it to brand-new Christians who often feel intimidated because they're like, you know, the, the Bible just seems like I'm just not going to be able to understand it. It just seems a little frightening to me, and uh, this is just written. I love the way it's written um, in chronological order, and it's written sort of as a narrative, as a story, uh, like a novel almost would be. So there's not the typical chapters and verses that are uh, we would find in the Bible that we normally have. It doesn't have all the verses. I need to mention that. But it gives you the story of God and his people from beginning to end, chronological order. And uh, I also recommend it to veteran Christians who just want to read the Bible in a little bit different way. And again, that is fresh on my mind, the series that we're starting today. But I'm wrapping up right now one of the ways I've been studying the Bible for the last few months, and I want to inject some newness into my devotional time, so I'm going to pick up the copy of mine that I have of this and read through that again. So they're out at the table. You can stop by, and we just simply charge the same exact price that we purchased those from. So I think you can get it much cheaper here than you could somewhere else. So take advantage of that, and uh, I think it'll be really, really helpful to you. Again, I'm glad you're here. And I want you to buckle up and hang in here with me today and actually for the next three Sundays because this is an incredibly important series that you and I are about to be engaged in. And for time's sake, here's what I want to do. I want to go ahead and just dive into a couple of verses right out of Mark chapter 1. And before we get to them, before the guys even put them up on the screen, let me give you just a little bit of background here. To really capture what has been taking place to this point, again, we're not too deep into Mark because it's still in chapter 1, but just so that you notice what Mark has been leading up to in these two verses, he has already by this time mentioned to us uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we know, was the forerunner. He was the person that went ahead of Jesus announcing. He said things like this, the one who is coming after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And uh, and so uh, he's been talking about Mark has John the Baptist, but then he transitions from the ministry of John the Baptist, and then he starts talking about the ministry of Jesus. He talks about the arrival of Jesus. He talks about the baptism of Jesus. He talks there about the temptation of Jesus. And now what Mark is going to do, and you're about to see it, is he is going to recap for us what is the indispensable message of Jesus. And the two verses you're about to see on the screen is out of Mark chapter 1, and it's verses 14 and 15. Take a look at it right up here with me. It says, after John, John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. He was proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. We're going to come back and talk about that because that's very important. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God. And we need to talk about that this morning, this sort of intro talk to this new, new series. Because if I were to walk up to you right now and say, what is the kingdom of God? It would be hard-pressed. Most of us would be to provide an adequate explanation for what is the kingdom of God. We need to talk about it. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So uh, Mark sort of encapsulates for us what is the totality of the ministry of Jesus. Now, we're certainly going to return uh, in this talk today to Jesus' message in regards to both the good news 
and to this idea of the kingdom of God. But just before we get there, I want to take you and have you check out with me a very prominent verse found in Galatians 4.19. In Galatians 4.19, in fact, let's look at it for just a moment, and then we're going to talk about it. Galatians 4.19. This is Paul, the great apostle, great church leader talking, and he's talking about uh, Christ followers. He's sort of, sort of this uh, patriotic type relationship, sort of a father in the ministry. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until... Now, these last five words are very, very important. Until Christ is formed in you. Until, look at him again, Christ is formed in you. Now, I've got to tell you, in regards to this verse, that a lot of people are basically tuning out this verse. And this verse, by the way, is rarely discussed in church, and I need to actually be talking about it more than what I actually do. And because it's overlooked, because it's ignored, because it's tuned out, because it's not nearly as discussed as much as it should be, tragically, really, we miss out on what is a huge part of God's plan for each of our lives. And that is that Christ would be formed in your life, and that Christ would be formed in my life, and that Christ would, for that matter, be formed in every life. Now, the reality is, and I want you to catch this, you're really going to need to think with me today. I hope you will. I know you will. The reality is this, that our lives have been formed by many different forces up until this point. Now, you may not like it, but, but your life in some way, some way has been formed by culture. Now, hopefully you've not allowed it, I pray not, to override your life, but in some measure of your life, culture has probably formed some part of you. Certainly your friends have. Media can, can influence us, your school, your work. Uh, parents uh, many times uh, f- form, help to form in, in our lives. In fact, this uh, past week, I was on the phone with my oldest sister. I have two sisters and a brother. And I was on the phone with my oldest sister. I'm very close uh, with her and her with me, really all my siblings. But my sister and I was having this conversation. Often we talk about mom who passed away a year ago. Most of you know that if you've been here for some time. Mom passed away uh, a year ago. And so we were talking about mom. And my sister is an educator in the suburbs of Atlanta there, where we're from. And I said to her, I said, Debbie, what are you getting ready to do? Just sort of a common question. What are you getting ready to do? And she said, I'm getting ready to go. And she named two stores. And as soon as she said those two stores, I thought about our mom. Because those were two of my mom's favorite stores. And I said something like this to my sister. I said, Debbie, as, as long as I'm talking to you, a little part of mom remains alive in me. And then I said something that she has not always liked to hear. I said, because you remind me so much of mom. And she used to not like to hear that at all. In fact, I would tell her that. And mom would tell her that. Mom would say, Debbie, you are so much like me. And Debbie would be almost argumentative. And she'd be, I'm not like you. I'm nothing like you. And then I would sort of add to it. I'd say, Debbie, not only do you act just like mom, you look just like mom. She said, I don't look like mom at all. And she's, so now she's had to debunk both because she recognized, she mentioned this on the phone just this week. She said, Jeff, you know, I finally came to realize I am a lot like mom. I'm a lot like mom. And I said, I know you are. It's good that you're finally admitting it. And she used to say, I don't look like mom. And all that got uh, ruined because one day, some of you have heard me tell this story, 
she went down downtown Atlanta. She's walking into a big office building. As she's climbing the steps, she comes to the top of the steps on the landing, walking toward the building, does not realize that it is mirrored glass. She thinks it's clear, just glass. And she stops, and she says to herself for just a moment, what is Mama doing here today? And she was looking at herself in the glass. And I'm like, yeah, I told you, you look just like Mama. And you act just like Mama. And she's been formed by mom. And many of us have been formed by our parents. Now, don't miss this. God's highest purpose for your life and for my life is above culture and friends and media and school and work and parents, above everything else. God's plan is that Jesus would actually be formed in our life. But what does that mean? I mean, for me to say uh, Jesus and for us to look at Galatians 4.19, Paul says, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What does that mean? What does that look like? And it is this, and I'll just give it to you as basically as I know how. For Christ to be formed in us. Again, I, I told you you're going to need to think with me a lot. For Christ to be formed in your life and my life is simply this, is that we would begin to think more like Jesus thinks. That you and I, if we're going to have Christ formed in us, that we would, we would really begin to sense and feel the things that Jesus senses and feels. That we would begin to see like Jesus sees. That we would look at his eye, with his eyes at people and circumstances and we would see like Jesus sees. And that we would do in our lives the things that Jesus would do. Now, this word formed, as we see in Galatians 4.19, and again, we're starting this new series today. And I want to just go ahead and mention to you right up front, this is sort of an overview. I'm going to sort of set the stage in this talk for where we're going to go in the next three weeks. So... This word formed is mentioned when you search the Bible numerous other times, but it may look something like this. Look at this verse up on the screen. This is 2 Corinthians. Again, it's the Apostle Paul, church leader Paul, 3.18. He says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we are being, and here's that word in a different, we are being transformed until Christ is formed in you. He said, we are being transformed into his likeness. We begin to feel what Jesus feels, see what Jesus feels, see what Jesus sees, and, and do what Jesus does. His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me show you one other example of this. This is, this is out of Romans. This is chapter 12, the A part of verse 2. A lot of you are familiar with this verse. When Paul says here, he said, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be what? What does it say? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are you going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Until Christ be formed in you. When we begin to think like Jesus thinks and feel like Jesus feels and see like Jesus sees and do in our lives what Jesus would do. But herein lies the predicament. Here's the problem. In fact, one writer says it like this, that the primary crisis facing the church today is a crisis of transformation. Now, what is this particular writer and many others just like him uh, stating? It is this, people in the church are not necessarily being transformed. People in the body of Christ are not necessarily being transformed. 
I talked to you in this last series, and we said is we're going to follow sort of our leader, Jesus, that Jesus made it, that it was his custom to be in church every seven days, that on the Sabbath, every Sabbath, he went up into the synagogue, at least every seven days, Jesus was going to church. But Jesus would be the first to declare, just going to church is not going to bring to pass the transformational activity of God in your life and mine. It is not that alone going to cause Jesus to be formed in us. Just because you come to church, and that's good. That's good. I applaud that. You ought to be. I ought to be. But just because we come to church does not necessarily mean, catch this now, friends, that there is automatic transformation that takes place in our life. It does not mean that. I'll give you a case in point. Just because you come in here does not mean that you are automatically transformed, just as, and some of you know I go to Chick-fil-A for breakfast, not lunch, not for dinner, but for breakfast literally six mornings a week. I walk into Chick-fil-A every morning, but I can tell you, by walking into Chick-fil-A as many times as I have, I have never turned into a chicken sandwich nor waffle fries. It's not automatic. I've wanted to be a chicken sandwich a time or two, but I'm not. But just because you and I come to church does not mean there is, writers say, a crisis of transformation that is facing the church. Now, let me talk about that for just a moment. I, uh, bef- before I came here uh, to Lakeland, I lived in Lakeland, graduated from Southeastern many years ago, never dreamed that I'd be back in Lakeland. And so about going on almost 18, 17 and a half years ago or so, I came here. Uh, most of you know that Lakeside, we started about 11 years ago, 12 years uh, coming up, I think, this April. Prior to that time, a lot of you may not know this, but uh, I was the lead pastor at a church up in northeast uh, Florida near Jacksonville, and the church took a huge risk. Uh, I pastored that church about 10 years uh, before coming here about 17 and a half years ago. I was a very young pastor when I went there. There's a lot I didn't know, a lot I needed to learn. Uh, very green, a novice in ministry. In, in fact, I was so young. Generally, churches do not elect 14-year-old pastors, but, you know, they were willing to take a risk. All right, a little bit older than that, but I was, I was young. I was very young. Had a lot to learn. But you know what I noticed my very first service? I noticed that there was this guy. Very first Sunday, I noticed this, that there was a guy sitting, and I'm so glad that none of you are like this, thank God, but I noticed the very first Sunday there, there's a guy sitting out in the service that just had the biggest scowl on his face I'd ever seen. He looked just like this. Just had this big scowl on his face. I'm like just thinking to myself, what's his deal? And, uh, you know, I hate to tell you this, but on my final Sunday there, about 10 years later, do you know that this guy still had that same scowl on his face? Just every week, just... Now, some of you are going to be shocked by this. I, I don't have any problem using humor when, when I give talks, and sometimes it just comes out of no, nowhere, and that's dangerous, by the way. Sometimes I may think about something ahead of time that I think may be funny, and I hope that you think it will be funny, but I can remember times when it was like 99.9% of that church was just found something to be so humorous, and I'd look over at this guy, and he'd be just like this. Every week for 10 years. Now, I could have taken that incredibly personal until I realized, because some people clued me in, that he had looked that way for 30 years prior to me ever coming there. 
I don't even know if he's alive today. I hope he is. But if he is, I pray that he's not sitting there looking at that pastor of that church now just. Now, you know what's ironic about that? Nobody expected him to change. Nobody expected him to change. Nobody expected for him to be transformed. Isn't that sad? Nobody expected Christ to be formed in him. You, you just think about this. And let's just say, for example, bringing it into our context right here, let's just say, for time's sake, to just snatch a number out of the air, uh, five years. Let's say that you started coming to our church five years ago, and when you started coming to our church five years ago, you were a very grouchy person. I would hope that by now you would not be a grouchy person anymore. Because you had been changed. You had been transformed. Christ was being formed in you. If you came and you were a prideful person, I would hope that you would be removed from that. If you came and you were an unloving person, I would hope that now five years later, you'd become a much more loving person. If you came in a judgmental person, I would hope that you would become a grace-filled person. If you came in very self-righteous, I would hope that over time you would have been transformed by now and that you would be humble. See, nobody really expected this guy to change, but I truly believe that God did. God expected him to change. God expects you and I to change because none of us have arrived yet. None of us have made it yet. None of us can declare that we're perfect. Nobody can have Jesus Jr. printed across the back of our shirt because all of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have arrived, and we all need to change. But again, writers have talked about the crises of transformation. Now, in this series, which we've obviously started today, we're going to dig into this. How do we change? How do we change? Because I, I think you want to change. I know I, I want to change. I need to change. There's so many areas in my life that I need to change. I imagine you feel the same way. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to allow God to transform us? How are we going to change until Christ be formed in us. How can we change? What is a trend? We're going to get really practical. Listen, friends, you're going to want to be here every week of this series because we're going to talk about what does a transformed life really look like? How is it possible, as we're calling this series, how is it possible for us to really start to live a Jesus kind of life? Because a lot of us would say that we love God, and we do. A lot of us would say we need to come to church, and we do, and we ought to. But is it possible that you and I could live more so a Jesus kind of life? And the obvious answer to that would be yes. So let's briefly journey back to our opening passage for just a moment. Again, this is just sort of the introductory talk, setting us up for where we're going the next three weeks. When we go back to Mark's gospel, it says Jesus went into Galilee. And what was he doing? Mark said he's proclaiming the good news of God. And then we saw these words, what Jesus is proclaiming, Jesus Again, give me your best thinking right here. Jesus is saying the time has come. He's proclaiming the good news. And part of the good news is that the time has come. Jesus follows that up by saying the kingdom of God is near. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. And maybe you've read that many times before and you're like, I don't quite get that. What is Jesus really talking about? What is he trying to announce here? He is wanting his announcement to be clear to every single person. What Jesus is saying this time, the time that he is speaking to, remember what Mark said, what we find in Mark's gospel, Jesus went into Galilee. He proclaims the good news of God. He is saying the time has come. What does he mean the time has come? 
Jesus is talking about an epoch of time. He is talking about a defining moment in human history. He is talking about a time that Israel has been anticipating for hundreds of years, really since the fall of man, all the way back in the Genesis, when God created his people to live in harmony and unity and oneness with him, and yet sin came into the world, and it created this gap and this chasm that separated God from man. God wanted to do something about it. And so God ultimately would send Jesus, his own son, as we talked about just prior to communion. And this was a time that Israel had been waiting for. Jesus is saying that time has now come. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. This is the time that all of God's creation has been waiting for. It is the time that all hopes have longed for. When Jesus says that the time has come, that the kingdom of God is near, he is not saying that it is getting close. He is declaring that it is now here, right now, right now it is here, and it's available to all. The doors of the kingdom are open to anyone who is wanting to enter. And this is the gospel. And this is the good news. It really, uh, to just give you a little bit of a theological idea, when you see this idea of gospel and good news, it's interchangeable in so many different ways. The gospel is the good news. The good news is the gospel. And this is the gospel. This is good news for every person. In in fact, I want you to listen. This is not on the screen, but this is out of Matthew chapter 3. This is an example of this. It says, in those days, John the Baptist, we're back to him. In In those days, John the Baptist came, and he's preaching in the desert of Judea. And he's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. It is near. It is upon you. Just one chapter later, we discover that it is not only John the Baptist that is declaring this message. As we pointed out earlier, this is the gospel. This is the message. Look at this verse up on the screen. One chapter later, Matthew 4, 17 says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Listen, friends, I want you to get this. This is the message of John the Baptist. This is also the message of Jesus, but it does not just remain with the two of them. Jesus wants to even further circulate his message, and so he commissions his 12 disciples to go out and to broadcast that same message, and we see that in Matthew chapter 10. Look at these two verses, Matthew 10, 6 and 7. What does it say? Go rather, this is Jesus, he's sending out his 12, the inner circle, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel, and as you go, you preach this message, and you let them know the king, the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, anytime you see something like that, and we'll just do a little pause here for just a second, anytime you see this repetitively being mentioned in the scriptures, you've got to know that this, this matter of the kingdom, you should be convinced the matter of the kingdom or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is really paramount to God. But unfortunately, most people, maybe even even including you and me, this kingdom business seems to be so perplexing to us, mysterious, ambiguous, distant, but it's not intended to be. I I know that I felt in my life for a long time I've, I've felt for many, many years, the way that maybe many of you feel right now, that if I were to walk up to you and I were to use any of those words interchangeably, if I were to walk up to you right here, right now, and if I had a microphone and you're saying, oh, man, now I'd really, and I'm certainly not going to do that, would not, never have, never will, but if I were to walk up to you and say, can you explain to us what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? 
You know, notoriously speaking, at least in my mind, maybe it's true for some of you, you start thinking about, well, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom, that's, that's something that I look forward to. I hope that that becomes a reality for my life when I die. But do you recall the words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer? Do you remember what Jesus said? Think about this for just a moment. Everybody just really, really dial in because if you miss this, it's going to prohibit you to, from understanding the full reality, I think, of the kingdom of God, fundamentally speaking. What did Jesus say in the Lord's Prayer? He said, he begins it this way, Our Father who art in heaven. Now, this does not mean, when Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven, this does not mean that Jesus is saying that God is far away, that God is distant. distant. In fact, one of the teachings of Scripture concerning the character and nature of Jesus of God is that God is omniscient. Now, you're not going to see the word omniscient in the Bible. You're not going to see the word omnipotent in the Bible. But omniscient means that, that God is everywhere, uh, that God is all-knowing. Ob- omnipresent means that God is everywhere present. And so, God is not far away. That is not what Jesus is saying. He is saying he's omnipresent. He is here. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then listen to what he says next. The kingdom. We're back to the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Now listen closer to this this next part. On earth as it is in heaven. What What is Jesus saying here? He is saying, God is not there, God is actually here. What Jesus is saying, and you've got to catch this, friend, Jesus is not saying that the kingdom is a distant place way out there somewhere. He is saying the kingdom is a place that you can walk into right now. Let us pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so often when we think of the kingdom strictly in terms of of what does it mean in our present reality, we think this is where we go when we die. But Jesus gives to us the good news that the kingdom is somewhere that you and I can live right here, right now. The kingdom is among you even now. How do we know this? Listen, it's not on the screen, but I want you to listen to this. This is Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees, here it is, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, and then listen to what Jesus said. He said, because the kingdom of God is within you. God is, listen, friends, you got to capture this on this first Sunday of this series. God is not there. God is here. The kingdom of God is not a different place. The kingdom of God is something that you and I can walk in into even now. Even now, the kingdom of God is among you. To many, Jesus would say the kingdom of God is within you. Someone has creatively written that just as people live without the acknowledgement or awareness of the reality of things like gravity and electricity, so it is entirely possible to live our entire lives without an awareness or without acknowledging God's kingdom right here, right now. I want you to listen closely to something that Dallas Willard has written. Dallas Willard, if you've never read any of it's, it's heady stuff, but he was one of the brightest minds in regards to spiritual growth and spiritual formation. And listen to what he says. Listen to what he writes. It's brilliant. He said, living in the kingdom of God is a matter of living 
with God's action in our lives. This is a present reality. He said, when we seek the kingdom of God, we're seeking more and more to allow God to be present in everything that we are and everything that we do, that we do, and we allow him to act and overrule and guide and help us become what he intended for us to be. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is among you even now. One of the most fascinating stories that I've ever read concerning someone, as Willard said, someone who allowed God to be present in everything is actually the story of Mabel. Now, I've actually read this, this story many, many years ago, and I've never put it in any talk or any writing, but I want to share it with you today because Mabel exemplified what it was like to allow the presence of God and the kingdom to become a reality in her life and to have this awareness of it. I'm going to read more than I typically would. I know where we're at time-wise, and I want you to really, really dial into what Tom Smith wrote about because he's the one that had this exchange with Mabel. He writes, the state-run convalescent center is not a pleasant place. He wrote this many, many years ago. He said, it is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who, he says, are waiting to die. He said, on the brightest of days, it seems dark inside. He's talking about where he would visit all of the time. And it smells of sickness and stale urine each time that I'm here. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I would not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair, her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was actually the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new employees arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, woman thinking that if they could stay in this site, they could stay in anything else in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and I said, here is a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her, dis because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It is lovely. But can I give it to somebody else? I can't see it, you know, because I'm blind. Smith said, of course you can, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. And then she ran the farm alone until her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. 
For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches and backaches and stomach aches, and then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked to her. They often saw their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. But Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks. And I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words to all the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. Smith said, I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain except in the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things that she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 directions at once with all the things that I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? What does Mabel have to think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know whether or not it's day or night? So I went to her and I asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And I love her response. She said, when I'm lying here, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and I thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. Can you imagine? I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think that I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Smith said, she began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. Jesus is my friend. And you think about that. And when you think about Mabel, I think you would have to say, as Paul said in Galatians 4.19, until Christ is formed in you. You see, Mabel had learned something that most of us have not yet. She had learned how to allow God to be present in everything. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not here or there. The kingdom of God is here among you. And you can step into the kingdom of God even now. Jesus' message is good news. And it's good news for really a couple of reasons. It's good news because his message reminds us how much Jesus loves us and that Jesus is for us. Hey, the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? It's good news because it lets you know that God's kingdom is available to you. But you have to walk into it. You have to experience it. Jesus said, it's among you even now. God is not there. God is here. The kingdom is not off in a distant, faraway place. It is among us.
What is Jesus saying? The gate is open. The doors are open. You and I can walk into the kingdom of God. We're going to be talking about that for the next three weeks. I hope that you will not miss a single service because starting next Sunday, we're going to talk about how can you and I live a Jesus kind of life until Christ be formed in us. The crisis of transformation cannot be true for you and for me. We need to change, and God will help us to change. Will you stand with me now for a closing prayer? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, maybe right there in your own heart, you'd pray something like this. God, I need to change. Jesus, transform my life. Jesus, I want you to be formed in me. I don't want to be a year from now the way I am right now. I don't want to be five years, ten years. I want to grow. I want to change. I want to live a Jesus kind of life. Those of you that are not yet Christians, maybe you just say, I've never really thought about it that way. That the kingdom of God, the doors are open to me. The reality is you don't have to earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't be good enough to buy a ticket into the kingdom. You come by faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross. And you accept his gracious gift. And maybe right there where you're standing, you just say, Jesus, come into my life. I want to I step into your kingdom. I want to know what it's like to be led by you and guided by you. I want to live with your help, and I know I can only do it with your help, a Jesus kind of life. I don't want to be separated from God any longer. So I ask you to come into my life and forgive me of my sins and change me and transform me into the person that you want me to be. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, I love you. Have a great week. See you back here next Sunday.